Hey gang, we're back with another episode of Ranching Reboot. CK and I are really excited for today's guest. We talk about things like what is regenerative ag? What is a carbon credit? What is the difference between avoidance and drawdown when we're talking about carbon? In fact, today's discussion is all about carbon. That's pretty much all we talk about and we get way down into the weeds about some specifics about carbon credits that I really didn't even know existed. So buckle up, strap on, do whatever you gotta do. Let's take a ride with Kevin Silverman. How's it going? Hey. Hey, Kevin. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. How you doing, Ryan? Well, I'm doing really good today. Uh, it was nice and cool, only kind of mid-80s, which is a nice break from the heat. Had a little moisture yeah. recently, so I spent the morning out cleaning up some strays because we're going to be bringing in, going to be coming in pretty soon to preg check. So had to wow. yeah, get everything together and start them on the way back. What about you? What have you been up to? Uh, you know, just here working in carbon land, doing a lot of writing. Um, yeah, lots of interesting meetings. Lots, I feel like things are really heating up right now. Um, so it's an interesting time. And uh, yeah, we'll see how things go in this last quarter. <laughs> so carbon, that's why we're here today to talk all about carbon. And I guess we're talking about soil carbon, right? Yeah, we could also talk about carbon in general if you want to explain. Want me to explain what a carbon credit is and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Let's you know, let's break it down to kind of a more basic level for some of our listeners, and let's talk about what a credit is, who has to buy them, and then uh, we can start to move into the sequestration and uh, and the soil works and uh, grassroots carbon side of it. Yeah, I mean, CK, I'm happy to talk about my background. I don't have much of a background. No, I but. mean, that's, I think it's always important. <laughs> Our listeners really want, they really want to know who you are. Not, like, every time they have a guest, they want to know, what's your background? Where do you come from? And I, I think that that context is just something that, that everyone's, I'm always interested in. It's like, I had no idea, like, Travis Krause last week, I had no idea that he was, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, but like in the parasite world in India, like I had no idea. So I think just like, yeah, I worked for the Gates Foundation, which yeah. is crazy. Oh, yeah. that's fun. So, so Kevin Silverman is our, is our guest this week. And so Kevin, tell us a little bit about just like your background and then maybe just like how you got into Regen Ag, because I feel like um, your previous, I'm not going to say life, but I'm going to say life. Uh, was not in region ag right so this is kind of just it found you i feel like yeah yeah so to give some context you know i've always been a city boy um i grew up between miami and the dominican republic um i went to school in western mass but you know i studied history i thought i was going to go more of a traditional finance tech route and i did some interesting jobs um before working at SoilWorks, worked at a vc job um venture capital so it's kind of investing in startups really early stage stuff um, but after that, um, I was kind of looking for something more, I guess, impactful, like thinking about like, what's really important. what's really foundational. And I joined this fellowship that, you know, puts like young people like myself, like I'm only 25 in emerging, uh, cities in the U S and, uh, SoilWorks is hiring through it. The program's called Venture for America. And I just, you know, I took a leap of faith. I didn't really know what regenerative was beyond, you know, reading a couple books, like, you know, dirt to soil and, uh, you know, around the time I joined, that's when Kiss the Ground came out. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of, I just took a leap because they wanted kind of a more research position. I had done a, a fair bit of biology research in college. One of the 
botany side. So I, I understood how kind of like soil carbon work and a lot of the science behind it. Um, but it was just an interesting mix. You know, I think regenerative is a really unique place. And I'll be really blunt here to, to do well and do good. Um, it's not just, you know, I, I think you're going to see a lot of people going into regenerative over the next generation that might not have been appealed to it. And it's not just because of infrastructure being built like CK, you and I have talked about like Starlink and, uh, better broadband access for folks that might oh, yeah. want to live a quieter rural life and do like a, a high paying, you know, software engineering job. Um, but, but I think regenerative is a really unique generational opportunity. And I think folks have like a five to 10 year window to get in or they're going to miss the boat. Um, yeah, it was just weird. You know, I went back home this weekend and I was shopping with my dad and it was just, it was weird, you know, after a year kind of working regenerative and talking to a lot of producers and kind of learning what producers are wary of and learning, you know, reputations in the space. It was just weird to see how much my food, you know, like literally the stuff that I'm putting in my body, how much that's changed and, you know, going to my childhood grocery, like how the things I would have just picked, you know, without, without question, you know, a year ago, now I'm really thinking about, or, you know, I can talk to my dad and say, Hey, no, you should buy, you know, X product instead of Y product, you know, like with eggs, for example, it's like, there's so many different options and they all have like the same words. So it's like, you know, that's, it's really interesting to kind of like dive into that world and, and really know, where that comes from because it's just so disembodied right now and it's crazy um, looking back on it so you're totally bought in you're, you're totally bought into the regenerative local food and you've changed how you've eaten and it, so you've only and you've only been in the regenerative world for what a year 18 months yeah i'd say a year um you know, one thing I'll say is I don't think local food necessarily correlates with regenerative. I think local food's great because one, you're supporting a local economy and two, local farmers are the best way to learn the most about your food. You know, like it gives a human face to it and it's responsive. Like if I want to learn, you know, what practices someone does at a grocery store, it's really difficult unless it's local, unless they have an Instagram page or a Facebook page where you can, you know, send them a message or, you know, email them. Um, but I'm not sure it'll have the impact at scale that we need, you know, be it with greenhouse gases or, you know, in fighting climate change, you know, local's good, but I think it could be better. And with regards to buying into regenerative, I've always struggled in defining regenerative, you know, soil works. We're really focused on kind of on soil health and ecosystem services and kind of supporting, you know, making family farms more profitable. So family farm profitability to us is regenerative. And I know Travis, for example, last week talked about worker uh, welfare. And I think that's a really understated part of, of regenerative, especially on the animal protein side. So I feel like the issue is if you keep adding things to regenerative, regenerative means everything to everyone. So, so I, I've always had a hard time really discerning which are the key principles that um, regenerative should really be about versus what does it mean to me, if that makes sense. I think everyone struggles with that. Yeah, it, it's one of those hard things to define. Like, you know, somebody asked me today, how do you define regenerative agriculture? And tomorrow I might have a, a slightly different answer. It, it just depends on what I've been thinking about. And right. and sometimes mm-hmm. it also depends on who you're talking to as well. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a lot of people you start talking about carbon and soil biology and the bacterial fungal ratio in soils and they just kind of glaze over and they go, well, just tell me what feed I need to buy and how much I need to put out. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and then that's, 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 that's to their lived experience, you know. With regenerative, it's like, you know, if you're talking to a producer, it's important to talk about restoring the ecosystem, but it's also important to talk about, like I said, like the, uh, the, the bottom line impact that it can make for producers and, you know, how that works. You know, there's a, I feel like there, one, you can overpromise and say that the turnaround period isn't as high as it is. Um, and that you don't need transition financing when you might really need it or, or two, you know, that's just completely left out of the equation, especially if you're mentioning carbon credits and, um, you know, the, the, the way it, you know, regenerative land management might uh, increase the value of a property and restore the ecosystem. So you're totally right that it means a lot of different things to different people, but, you know, I think most things in the world um, are context dependent. Um, so you always need to provide as much context as possible. I think somewhere along the way, regenerative isn't necessarily an end state. It's not a, it, I mean, it's a goal, but it's a moving yeah. target. It's, it's, yeah. it's a path that we're on and a thing that we're striving towards to, and, and we're going to keep trying to make it better, but there's no definable end goal in sight as of yet. I don't think there should yeah. be though. You know, I think, if you define it, then it becomes like the new organic or becomes greenwash, right? It, it's almost like a challenge. Like, let's see how yeah. good we can make it. Let's see how good we can do. So that was, a, that was probably a great rabbit trail. So uh, oh, yeah. now let's talk about carbon credits. What is a Wait, carbon well, credit? thing there, though, that's interesting, though, is, you know, you can have a regenerative beef you know, system and by regenerative, I mean, closed loop restoring the ecosystem, but it's interesting with folks that are doing poultry and uh, pigs that you, you, you're always going to need some, some input and that can never be regenerated, like fully regenerative, but does that really matter? Does that mean it's not worth it? I think it's still worth it to do right. it. Um, so, so, you know, I think I just, I just want to like end on the note, like there's a lot of corporations that are really adopting regenerative pledges. And I don't really know what those mean, especially if, you know, their products come from monocrops or if they're doing these really large destructive agricultural practices at, you know, the million of acre scale, uh, millions of acre scale. Um, so, so I'm not, I'm not really sure, you know, how many trade-offs regenerative can accept, but I do think that it is a worthwhile pledge to make. And I'm glad that at least people are adopting that vocabulary because then you can hold them more accountable. And also with regenerative, it's like if you're not making things better, if, if you're just keeping things as they are, that's not good enough. You know, regenerative is about growing towards something else. Yeah, that would be sustainable. And we figured out, you yeah. know, a half a decade ago that sustainable just wasn't good enough. We can't maintain right. the current screwed up state forever. It's just not going to work. <laughs> we got to do something a little bit better. So let's, right. let's go talk about carbon credits. What the heck is a carbon credit, Kevin? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. It's not an easy one to answer. So at its core, a carbon credit is a tradable and retirable certificate that equates to one ton equivalent of CO2 emissions, so it's carbon dioxide emissions, that has not entered into the atmosphere. Um, it's a very technical definition, and that this is kind of the, the institutional historical term of a carbon credit that's been used for the past 25 years since the Kyoto Protocols. Now, I'm bringing this up because there's two ways to generate a carbon credit. One is you get paid to avoid releasing something into the atmosphere. So an agricultural example is 
if you have uh, a, you know, a feedlot with a bunch of manure, um, you use a, a digester to, to make sure that the methane doesn't escape into the atmosphere. Or if you're applying a lot of nitrogen fertilizer every year, um, you're paid to stop doing that. Um, so that is called what I call at least an avoided emission. You're being paid not to do a practice that would result in further emissions. The second one is from carbon drawdown. And this is getting a lot more attention lately. And essentially what this is, is you can either use uh, machinery, uh, like it's called direct air capture to literally suck carbon out of the air, or you can use a nature-based solution, like, you know, this regenerative agriculture um, style land management that we're talking about, or, you know, there's this cool ocean-based things or forestry where, you know, you you harness the power of nature almost to uh, start drawing down carbon. Um, both are acceptable forms of generating carbon credits. So typically it's like in a year, at the end of the year, at the end of some sort of time frame, you start accounting for it and the, 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 the certificate is generated after there's been verification and after it's in a registry. Um, a registry is essentially a third party that, that issues the certificate. So typically the person that's developing the project, the, the landowner, they're not issuing their own certificate. There's not Kevin Silverman credits. Um, for example, Grassroots Carbon uses B Carbon, which is a registry based out of uh, Houston, Texas, um, that's affiliated with the Baker Institute at Rice University. Um, there's a couple major registries, but you know, honestly, that sets its own its own world that we don't need to get into. But the thing that is worth mentioning is that there's two two types of um, credits. One of them is Voluntary, which means that the government is not overseeing and regulating it. And then there's compliance markets, which means that the government is directly involved in kind of setting emission goals and baselines and regulating the trade of these carbon certificates. Um, in California, there's a cap and trade program. In, in a couple states in the U.S., there's kind of like a, a regulated voluntary market for 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 carbon programs and in Europe, there's a, there's a compliance market that's growing every year. Okay. So why is soil one of the better ways forward? Why is soil one of the better ways to store carbon? Yeah. So, so there's a couple reasons why soil is such an attractive solution. Um, The first is just scale, you know, hundreds of millions of acres, are used for agriculture uh, in the U.S. And that, you know, it's been degraded over time over the past, I'll say the past century, if not longer. Right. So the opportunity to, one, restore ecosystems, um, so that's like a co-benefit on such a large um, area of land is something that's really attractive. And two is, you know, this is kind of back of the envelope math and it really varies ecologically, but, you know, if you're storing one ton of carbon, uh, per acre on average, and that's honestly a low estimate given what certain research papers suggest, this is both for grazing and for crops. Um, if you're storing one to two tons of carbon per acre, over you know 800 million acres in the U.S., then that equates to over uh, you know a, a gigaton of of carbon sequestered every year, and that really really changes the carbon accounting that we need. Um, people really, well, I won't say people, but I'll say corporate buyers and a lot of folks are really 
paying premium prices for carbon drawdown versus avoided emissions, because it's almost like people are getting the sense of urgency that it's not enough right now to avoid uh, further emissions, but it's time now to directly take out from the atmosphere. Obviously, this is a little bit you know, difficult. I think extreme weather events are really kind of pushing this forward. I think folks are starting to feel the effects a little right. bit more concretely. But there's still a market for avoided emissions. I think, you know, it's important for people to be aware of that. Are avoidance credits and drawdown credits, are they are they basically the same thing on the market? Are they priced the same? Um. You know, one of the issues with carbon credit markets because it's voluntary is that it's really hard to get transparent pricing data. There are some groups that do surveys. There's uh, plenty of groups that look at kind of cross sections of the market over time. But um, I'd say that, you know, avoidance credits are probably going at roughly half, if not less, the price of uh, removal credits. Um, I think towards the end of the year, so so I think this is interesting. You know, a lot of companies towards the end of the year, once their fiscal year is coming to a close, right. that's when they really start announcing, uh, you know, their carbon uh, commitments and who they're buying from and stuff. So as that becomes clear, I think what we'll see is that a lot of the bigger names will start purchasing from carbon removal projects or investing in projects that are directly associated with carbon removal as opposed, as opposed to avoided emissions. Because... Avoided emissions are generally treated as being uh, of lower quality, um, and they're also a lot easier to get. Um, so the market's kind of saturated with these old credits from projects in uh, you know certain parts of the world from like you know the mid two thousands or the early twenty tens. And you know if you're buying that, what are you really doing for the environment? The whole point of a carbon credit is to catalyze something forward to pay someone you know in our case for their ecosystem services. So one, more people adopt, and two, uh, so that, you know, they can continue doing that practice and so that it's an attractive financial opportunity um, versus, you know, just paying someone that organized some project over a decade ago. So with a, with a carbon program that we're doing, Kevin, with Grassroots Carbon, there's also uh, there's, there's a permanence piece. Can you speak on that too? Because I, I just want to, I guess my whole goal for this too is we get a lot of questions from our ranching reboot paddock and just people in general. So I just want this to be like a one-on-one throw, throw all the information at them so that they can kind of get a brief overview of the permanence piece. Um, we can talk about additionality and we can talk about um, other yeah, things. Yeah, so, um, so CK, something, you know, I, I gave a, a talk in, in the Hennis a couple of weeks ago to, to a, a, ran, a peer rancher group that, that yeah. Travis organizes under the Texas Grazing Lands Coalition. And something, you know, that's, that's important with permanence, important with, with all these things is what producers should know if they're going into a carbon credit sort of agreement like what are the risks what should they be kind of eyeing out what questions should they have um so i have a a little kind of a short list i'm I'm happy to share you know i'm I'm be curious for for what you guys think um but you know the first thing is is that these are never going to be short contracts and that's because of the nature of how soil works you know um it's funny soil works Um, (laughs) but it's you know if if you draw down carbon in the soil and then you till it the next year it's just going to be released back into the atmosphere and you know 
that's um, that's by the nature of, of just how the um, the drawdown works. You know the you know it's photosynthesized through the through the grass and then through the roots. Um, you know it goes into the soil and you have kind of like the, the microbial processes. And over time, it'll actually go into more permanent pools of carbon. So there's one pool that's called mineral associated organic matter. That's like thousands of years of permanence that it's never going to be touched unless people are just drilling through the land. So you need to see some sort of continual land management um, mm-hmm. over time in order to achieve any results like that. So, you know, we're, we have one of the shortest contract lengths where we're 10 years um, for, for example, a, another registry Vera, um, their standard contract is it's supposed to be of a hundred years, but their minimum is 25. Uh, the American carbon registry has something called 10 year accounting where it's a hundred year contract but essentially, you know, if, if you sign a 30-year contract, you're only going to get paid for a third of your carbon. So a lot of these folks are really thinking in this 100-year time frame that, you know, if, if I'm signing that contract, I'm binding a lot of people into that because, right. I'm, I, you know, I probably won't be around 100 years. I can't <laughs> sign a 100-year contract. I, I can't do that. I'm going to be in a bat. You know, I don't even know. Um, but I... You know, 10 years is a commitment as well. And, you know, having some sort of rolling agreement like we have where each year the landowner signs on for another year tacked on at the end, I think that provides good flexibility, but that's not really the market standard. Um, So understanding kind of where you're at. um, And if, you know, if you do have the capacity to continue these practices for so long, um, is really important. Um, The second thing that matters is, a lot of these programs are prescribing specific practices. So for example, you know, I don't want to pick on Vera, but Vera has a set of practices that they lay out for, um, you know, agricultural land management improvement, cover cropping, no-till that you need to adopt within a certain time period and you need to continue doing it. Now there's other things that you can, um, you can add on over time, like, you know, planting uh, native perennial grasses um, if you want to do kind of livestock integration, that also, you know, that's okay. But a lot of these carbon programs are really based on adoption of specific practices. So it's understanding that you're going to need to continue these practices. If you stop them, you're not going to be paid for your carbon. So understanding if that's really feasible with your land, um, understanding if that's something you want to do, um, you know, that, that's really important. I feel like a lot of these programs are pretty aggressive um, when pursuing landowners. So they might think it's okay. And, and with a lot of averages, you know, if they have a churn rate of, you know, 10 landowners when they have 10 million acres, I don't think they really care. Um, right. But, it, you know, as the person signing the contract on the other end, you know, you might be on the hook um, if you don't really think through what's feasible um, on your end. Um you know, carbon credits right now, you know, right now we're selling it between 25 and $30 a ton. Um, you can check that out on our website if you want to <laughs> double check me. Um, and, you know, I think that's a premium price in the market right now, especially compared to a lot of the, like I said, avoided emission credits you can get. But thinking about the cost of transition, um, you know, some equipment might be harder to get in certain areas. If you're doing things like buying certain seeds and you're going to need to buy hay and you're going to need to change the entire kind of structure of your fencing and water 
and right. uh, your whole infrastructure, right. you know, really understand what it's going to cost um, and understand whether it's worth it or not. And um, maybe it might make sense, you know, I, I hate to say this, but maybe it might make sense to wait a few years until you have a better understanding of the market. Um, the, the major reason why folks don't get into carbon markets, and I'm drawing this from a series of polls that AgriPulse did um, of, of ranchers, is because of a lack of trust in the market. Um, and I think that's totally understandable. Um, so yeah, so just kind of like being aware of the unit economics is really key. Um, something that, that that's important that is mentioned is certain folks are paying farmers a fixed rate for these practices. So some might be saying you're going to get $9 if you adopt no-till and cover yeah. cropping. Um, but you know, the price is going to go up every year, especially as we inch towards the compliance market. So you know, my my suggestion there is try and get a percentage of credits if possible. I don't think that there's a golden number there. I think it really varies. Um, you know, I think at the very least, a large majority of that should be going to uh, the landowner. But don't don't get locked into a certain sort of fixed rate uh, agreement unless you know there's a really specific reason why, um, which you, they could be paying above the price of the credit, or you know they've explained the unit economics well. Um, and it's also important, um, you know, there's this bill going through that passed the Senate. It's going through the House right now called the Growing Climate Solutions Act. Um, you know, the government's going to be involved in regulating the voluntary uh, soil carbon world. So they should have an answer as to, one, what's the government doing? Two, what's their role in it? And three, what do they think about it? Um, the Growing Climate Solutions Act is essentially built to defend landowners. Um, the whole idea is... You know, we don't want folks being preyed upon. How can we protect them from uh, from folks that will just kind of want to sucker them into these carbon programs and then use up, um, you know, kind of like build them into to kind of a, a, a system uh, that kind of has like a, a vicious cycle built into it. Um, so how can you kind of like, you know, grapple with that? So, so what do you guys think of the Growing Climate Solutions Act is a question I'd always definitely ask if you're interested in a carbon program. Um, I'm pretty libertarian, so you might not want to know what I think about government. (laughs) So shoot away. I mean, it's, it's worse. It's, it's definitely worth discussing because there have been a few carbon markets in the past. that are totally voluntary. Um, You know, the Chicago climate exchange um, was the big one. So it's like, what really is the best structure for this is, it's, it's a totally open question right now, Brian, and I think it's not settled. You know, I think it's really worth, you know, debating and duking it out. Yeah, it, you know, I don't have a real sound background in government policy. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a little, that stuff's a little bit of over my pay grade. I, and I, I'm not real familiar with, the, with all the finer points of the plan but from what I have read, it seems like they want to spend a bunch of money and they've got some goals, but they're not real sure how they're going to get there. And, you know, maybe maybe we do need a legislative definition of a credit. Maybe we do need some legislative framework for a carbon market to to keep things fair. But then I worry about, you know, the the over the tendency of federal government to kind of take over things and pick winners and pick losers and set a floor of entry and keep the small players out. And, you know, that leads to continuing concentration. 
I worry about that happening. Um, right. You know, I did see something come out of the White House this morning, and I post on Facebook about it, about that that the current administration, I almost can't even say the name, <laughs> the current administration <laughs> is, is going to go after the meat packers. They're going to look into the meat packers and the concentration in the meat packing industry. And... Gosh, I don't know. I don't know if that really scares me or if I'm really encouraged about it. Uh, I, I we'll just have to see where it goes. And yeah. and kind no, of the I mean, same thing does. with the Growing Climate Solutions Act. You know, yeah, we need to settle the Wild West down of the carbon market. There's there's going to be a carbon gold rush, and maybe we do need to have some fair standards on what, what good credits are and what credits might not be so good. You know, I, I have a lot of faith, obviously, in SolarWorks Natural Capital and in Grassroots Carbon. Um, you know, and I'm really encouraged because, you know, you guys want to take a three-foot core on the B-carbon standard, and that's a lot different than trying right. to estimate it from a satellite or, you know, go out and take a six-inch soil core. That's so... There is some Wild West aspect to it, so maybe some standardization is 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 necessary. But how do we get there without picking winners and losers? Um, I mean, that's that's a you know that, that's a million dollar question. Um, I guess from a policy perspective, you know, standardization is important on the carbon side. Um, because there's always the possibility of fraud. Um, there's the possibility that a credit that someone buys um, ends up being worthless. And then what do they do if they spend all this money on carbon credits and it ends up being uh, worth nothing? If literally the credits are, you know, up in smoke and fire, um, as unfortunately a lot of forestry credits are. Not a lot. There's just a few projects for the, you know, the entire acreage of what did they uh, think was eventually going to happen to those forests? Like, what did they think was eventually going to happen to them? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a good question. I mean, the risks are there, and there are, like, these buffer pools, and, you know, it's all kind of, like, modeled out financially. It's, it is thought out. It's not like these aren't conservative estimates. But I don't think folks thought that the entire project boundary was going to go up in flames. Um, and that's really unfortunate for everyone involved. Um, yeah. You know, but what you mentioned about the cores is important because, you know, we need to stop thinking of soil carbon as being this like bank vault where the carbon just goes in and then it's stored forever. It's a part of right. a living, living, breathing yeah. ecosystem. You know, it's like a grow and flow model where it's just about accumulating the most uh, carbon at scale that cycles through the soil. Um, and some of that will be deposited deeper and deeper. You only see that if you actually measure it deeper and deeper. You know, satellites can penetrate a bit of the soil and the topsoil, but it really won't go through. And, um, and the deeper the storage, generally the more permanent, correct? Yes, generally speaking. So, you know, it's it's the deeper the horizon. Um, yes. You know, and we don't even know what, what really goes on beyond a meter deep because they're, I mean, that data is so expensive to collect. I wonder, you know, there's, there's, there's some good money to be made for folks leaving the oil and gas industry that have these 
really expensive rigs to just go deep, um, you know, a couple meters deeper than we do. Um, but you know, there's also, you know, you're talking about a processing bottleneck. Uh, there's a, a soil lab testing bottleneck. The unit economics of, of lab testing also changes it. And then it takes a lot of time. Um, and there's just, you know, not, not that many places in the U S that have the capacity to really handle commercial, uh, you know, uh, soil carbon testing, especially for these larger cores. Um, it takes a lot more processing on the field because you need to either break it up on the field or send these intact cores. And then they have to do a lot more, um, some more dangerous sort of work, kind of like chopping up the cores, dividing it, and, and using exercising professional judgment a lot more than they're used to. Because that's different than you just using a you know a, a normal little uh, I don't even know what the instrument's a called probe. The, 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 yeah, probe. Thank you, a yeah. probe to just like break it in. Where here, you know, sometimes the, the soil is so dry you can't even use those um, without throwing out your back. So um, yeah. it's difficult. But you know, I guess you know will. You know, will the government solve this problem on its own? No. Um, you know, with, with soil carbon, I think providing some general, um, you know, guidance on what's out of bounds, I think is useful because I think that'll protect people from fraud. Um, I think it'll protect the industry from, you know, being illegitimate before it even gets started. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe some, you know, uh, Again, the, the key focus of this bill seems to be on protecting the, the landowners and the farmers and the ranchers. There is even an advisory council for the, kind of the formation of whatever comes out of it that I think 16 of the 25 people on it will be folks who own land. Uh, it'll be folks that are running and operating the land. It won't be uh, folks in government, and it won't be folks in kind of the, the agribusiness value chain. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, I think... You know, meat processing is, is its own issue, and I have no idea what's actually you know going to come out from it. But I think scrutiny is good. Um, you know, you you need transparency at least, um, and if that's something that can be forced through government, I think that's important. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know the government will unlock the solutions on its own, but providing transparency in most markets is important to a free market functioning as it should. So, you know, we're talking about free markets and you just brought up the cattle market, which got me going on to price discovery and, and true price reporting. We don't have any of that in carbon markets at all. No, there's, there's a couple folks that are doing good work you know, trying to uncover it, but no, not, not at all. And, you know, even, even if you're a buyer that does due diligence, it's really hard to, uh, to have kind of true understanding of of price discovery and what market prices are, um, unless you're really in the know. And even that's based on word of mouth, not some sort of financial mechanism. And past price discovery you know, not all credits being created equally because there's, you know, there's avoidance credits, compliance credits. Um, you know, there's, there's credits that maybe have more permanence. Is there maybe a need for something like a, uh, carbon credit rating system or carbon credit score? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's a great, you know, that's, it's a great point. Um, so, so something I want to mention before I get into that is that, 
when, you know, when I was talking about what a carbon credit is, is it is something that functionally should be commoditized with these registries. All the credits in the same registry are equal. Um, they're supposed to have equal worth. They're equally retirable. So, you know, if my company emits, I don't know, a hundred thousand tons of, of carbon uh, dioxide, I'm going to need to buy whatever the equivalent of a hundred thousand tons of carbon dioxide is to offset it. So I can buy these junk credits and say, and even if they're, you know, with a reputable registry, I can say I'm buying these, they're in a reputable registry, I'm carbon neutral. I get all the good press, even if the credits are um, honestly not what they should be versus paying a bit more and protecting myself a bit and actually doing it. Because in the end, if my end goal is just to say that I'm carbon neutral or I'm supporting a certain project, then, you know, you can do that with junk credits. So I think finding a way, a way to make it commoditized in the future is going to be really important, even though the externalities like the biodiversity benefits and the water benefits and, you know, supporting uh, farmers and ranchers and, you know, local projects, which is a big thing. I think it's really important, honestly. Um, the key thing for carbon markets is to find a way to make it commoditized. Um, but when things are, get a group, when things that, get commoditized, uh, though, they have a tendency to get centralized, and generally, the producer's share has a tendency to go down over time after something becomes commoditized. How could how would the car, how could a carbon market protect the producers from that? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Because the carbon markets aren't designed to protect the producers. Um, because if you're thinking about it, you know, you can have a carbon market from, you know, cook stoves in Kenya is kind of the, the quintessential um, idea that you give folks these certain types of cook stoves that don't pollute as much, or you pay people not to kind of uh, burn land in, in Africa when they're doing their, their land management. Um I, I'm not sure I have an answer to that, to be honest. I think it's a very valid, and it's a really valid question. Um, it's okay you don't have an answer. I, I didn't have an yeah. answer either. It just kind of jumped into my head. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I mean, it, it's, it's worth lingering on, though, because it's like, well, what happens in 10 years? You know, right now, it might change the unit economics for folks switching to regenerative. Um, you know, but what happens in 10 years? Um, who's really going to have power in the market and how can you make sure it doesn't necessarily go to the middlemen, but it goes to the people actually doing the work on the ground or, you know, the folks, you know, look, I, I think soil carbon is going to be a major um, protector, I'd say, of, of ecosystems um, as, you know, we go through these extreme weather events and they'll be an important tool um, in in, in fighting kind of uh, fighting climate change. Um, but we're going to need other things as well. We're going to need a portfolio of diverse solutions. Um, so, so it's important to know that the market will always include a variety of projects. I do think soil carbon is the sweet spot because it has a scale. It's natural. So you have all these other you know benefits and it will support these people. Um, yeah. I hadn't really thought about, you know, like what the market's going to look like in 10 years, because I think, you know, there's a possibility that the market doesn't even develop for soil carbon for that long, because there's still all these questions that need to be figured out. And, um, you know, there's, there's these debates going on about permanence and, you know, folks that have a really strong engineering mindset really kind of critique 
soil carbon because it isn't, again, as permanent or as, you know, A to B to C as other forms of uh, carbon offsetting are. We're going to suck it out of the atmosphere using a lot of fossil fuel energy, compress it, pump it 6,000 feet underground and inject it into a rock and hope it stays there forever. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're, you're totally right, Brian. To, yeah. And like my thing is like we just need to like really, really own the storytelling part of like what you're saying, Kevin, is is there's other added benefits that we're not even commoditizing, like cleaner water, wildlife conservation, and, and actually like healthier a healthier food system, right? So I think these things that we all kind of just know by being in this world that we are in, but but I do I do think we just kind of have to be really good about telling the story on why this nature-based solution is better than these engineered solutions, even though it may be more direct data. I don't know. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, and look, these solutions, I don't, you know, there's these, a lot of these companies are delivering on their promises to suck it out of the atmosphere, yeah. but it's but at $600 so linear, a ton. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's the, the CEO of Grassroots, uh, Hank, he likes to use this quote from, from Albert Einstein, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. And, and that's really stuck with me, just kind of thinking about, like, how do you fight climate change? Like, you know, there's this effect with grasslands, it's called the grasslands cooling effect, that folks mm-hmm. don't really talk about. There's some academic literature on it, but literally having healthy grasslands, not only does it, you know, sequester soil carbon, but it actually re- results in a you know, cooler, more temperate environment. And it's like, well, how can we get that at scale? You know, shouldn't, you know, grasslands, you know, prairie restoration be, be a key focus then as opposed to just carbon reductionism? You know, carbon reductionism is a very, very dangerous way of thinking yeah. about this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I think that's something that, that lends itself to grazing as well in particular. You know, with, with grazing, you're kind of, you know, I feel like, as I've understand it, if you're doing it in a regenerative way or if you're really trying to be a, a, a land steward, you're going to foster kind of a, a biodiverse ecosystem. Um, and, and, you know, thinking about how you can do that some sort of at scale is, is really a key solution. And, you know, I really wonder if, you know, you know, one of the key critiques of regenerative that I've seen um, both, you know, economically and from a policy perspective is that it takes like 2.5 times more land to have the same level of output. Um, I'm not sure if that's true. First of all, that's just extrapolating from specific studies. But second of all, it's like the land that they're on, they're not damaging. So, so what if you need more land to do it? Um, shouldn't that be something that, you know, policies geared towards? Why don't we have um, more cattle or, you know, bison? I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a bison guy, but some people are like, why don't we have, you know, these ruminants on lands where they can help restore the ecosystem where they won't be doing damage? Um, or, you know, if we're, you know, using less land for, for corn and soybean feed, you know, why doesn't that land be readopted into sort of this cycle of restoring grasslands? Oh, because the government's paying farmers to destroy their crops. Have you seen that one? <laughs> I, I'm yeah. just kidding. That I mean, that I don't think that was a real thing. But, you know, there's, like, up in the Corn Belt, like, the general sentiment is, oh, great, there's carbon payments. Oh, I sequester a half a ton or maybe a ton an acre a year. Oh, I'm going to get paid. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing with all this tillage. And I think that that's kind of, uh, you know, like – if you sample at the same time every year, you might get the same number, but does that, are you really 
building up any long-term storage? Are you plowing it up, and is that ton cycling every year? You know, so I again, we're kind of like back to the quality of credits. Like, you know, yes. how, how is there going to be a level playing field? So, you know, so the buyers know that they've got good quality credits, and so the sellers know, and you know, the, the land managers, I guess, the managers, the people that are doing the work, have something to work towards. To, to have a high quality credit to sell that's worth more than than a credit that's say valid in a tillage type system. Yeah, so so there's there's been a couple interesting studies in this space in particular. One of them was done by a group called Carbon Plan, um, and Microsoft essentially funded a study said, "Hey, look at all the protocols that is all the different like methodologies set up by third parties um, with regards to soil carbon." So grassroots, for example, wasn't on that list, but the carbon, the registry that we're using was. And I think they found a total of 14. And their main conclusion was, look, this is a a developing space. Um, The best um, sort of of the, the, the best protocols are those which do rigorous measurements. They need to be based in ground truth measurements and which provide a lot of kind of safeguards to buyers and really value permanence in doing the soil science right. But buyer beware. Buyers need to do their own diligence. There is no standardization in sort of that due diligence process yet. Um, you know, the soil science part is, is really key. I think that the, the carbon plan explanation is really valuable for understanding, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm getting a credit that follows the, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a particular protocol, but if I'm following, that follows, yeah, let's do the B carbon or the Vera 0021 or the food and agriculture organization methodologies. Those three are like, oh, well, they're doing everything right according to the soil science. And if they're following the protocols laid out um, with regards to measurement and reporting and following on with those methodologies, they're doing it right. So that's a good signal. But you should always keep on doing it. You know, an issue with with nature-based solutions is that you are working with landowners. You know, there's it's not an added risk, but you're working with human beings. And right. I feel like something that people like about these engineered solutions, it's like, well, they're working with the factory and they understand a factory. Yeah. And as long as they're paying the factory to, to suck down carbon, they're going to keep doing that. Um, and 10 so, guys work there and it contributes this to the local <laughs> economy. Exactly. Um, exactly. And <laughs> as opposed to just trying to help, you know, uh, a community of ranchers and, yeah, you know, I do think that that's a key risk. Um, you know, the, the carbon credits have their own internal um, metrics outside of the soil science. So some of these terms, uh, the first one's permanence, which you've talked about. Soil carbon has its own permanence risks. Second is this thing called leakage. So let's say I am a producer and I'm producing, uh, I don't know, let's say I have um, 100 a uh, hundred head of cattle. And what happens is I say, I'm going to sign up for one of these programs, but in order to do so, I need to change my practices. And therefore, if I change my practices, I'm actually only going to be able to have 50 head of cattle, or let's say, you know, it's at a certain weight. So, you know, why don't we do, um, so, uh, let's say we have a, you know, a thousand pounds of, of, of ground beef. Um, if we have to cut that in half, what folks want to know is where is the other 500 pounds being produced now? 
is that just going to be produced in a feedlot now or some sort of CAFO system that's actually not good for the environment? So in reality, you're not actually helping things out. Um, then a, there's, a, there's a leakage discount taken. I'm not sure the exact percentage, and it's not going to discount your project. But the whole idea is, you know, you don't want to just shift production either to other countries or to other companies that will end up still harming the environment. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it sucks for producers that, you know, they can't control that in many cases, but it also means that if you're a big agribusiness, for example, and you want to get into the carbon credit game, you can't just like say, Oh, everywhere, everything we do in the U S is going to be super regenerative. And then they just move everything to, you know, another country where they'll just like intensify their production even more. Yeah. Everything in the U S is going to be regenerative and they sell everything down to one farm and move it all back to Brazil or, Nigeria, yeah, exactly. Wherever, <laughs> um, and there's key risks there. Um, and the third one is this term called additionality, which is essentially, you know, at its core, what it means is people are getting paid for their carbon credit um, for a specific practice. Right. Um, so essentially, the the payment of the carbon credit needs to incentivize the practice. Um, in particular, a lot of these carbon registries emphasize the idea of a practice change. So only if I've changed practices within the past two or three years with the motive of getting paid for a carbon credit, will I be allowed to be paid for a carbon credit? Um, we're explicitly using a different idea of additionality. So we're using this concept of measured additionality, which is essentially that, you know, regenerative land management is a series of decisions. It's not linear. Um, sometimes you will be forced to take decisions that you don't want to take um, because you feel it's what's best for your land and you're being rational about it. Um, so only at that point where we're measuring in that land and you've signed your contract or started measuring everything, are you really bound to do those things? So the fact that you've been a good land steward for the past five years, 10 years, 15 years, that shouldn't be held against you. Um, there shouldn't be a harm against you for being an early adopter. It's contentious because it's like, well, you know, I think the argument that would be made, um, if I'm getting kind of in my carbon credit critic hat, it would be, well, what change are you actually <clears throat> leading to? You're just paying someone to keep doing the same practices that they were doing. And I think that's a fair critique, but then I think there's two rebuttals. The first is one, you're trying to catalyze change. The people that are most likely to keep on doing regenerative practices are the folks that have done it. And if you can say, Hey, these guys deserve to be paid for what they've done. Yes. And it will, they will lead other people to start getting like, yeah, exactly. You know, like, so I think that's a valuable argument and there is evidence. So, you know, I kind of was doing research into other carbon markets, other carbon uh, registries do have kind of these early adopter clauses. Um, So that's one reason. And the second is, again, you know, we're not really taking this prescriptive practice approach where you need to have a certain number of rotations and uh, do certain things in your paddock and have a certain uh, number of cattle or, uh, you know, apply a certain microbial seed uh, coating to, to your grasses and do XYZ grasses so then we can model it out. Um, and because we're not doing that, 
it's more important to really say one, what a farmer or rancher can't do, which is really disturb soil health, no till, no application of certain uh, synthetic fertilizers. Um, and, and two, really kind of just say like, look, you know, you had the option beforehand if you wanted to be, you know, regenerative or conventional or anything in the spectrum. And now, you know, this is, this is you making a covenant in a way, a legal covenant to keep on, you know, doing these practices and to keep on, you know, following through until the duration of this contract is over. Um, so it's just a different way of thinking about it. I feel like you need to change the paradigm to really make this scale because right now it's so landowner unfriendly. Right. So what happens if I sign a contract and the price is say, you know, low twenties and in two years, that price is 50 bucks per credit. That's why you want a percentage of it. You want it to be listed out as a percentage. You don't want it to be listed out necessarily as I'm going to get $9 per credit until the duration of this contract's over. Um, I, I think, you know, we don't really, you know, there's all these studies done on what the prices of credits will be. We don't really know what it will be, but there is a, there's not enough credits to meet demand currently and demand isn't even that high because most companies are still like, they're doing like, you know, small purchases to say, Oh, look, we're, we've started looking in, they're starting to build out their teams. They're starting to, you know, these big oil and gas producers and folks kind of in, in the commodity space are starting to build out their trading desks and start to scout out like what it's going to look like when this really scales. Um, but that's why I say like always try and get a percentage as opposed to get locked into a price. You know, it, we were talking about price reporting earlier, and it's not easy to dig up what the price of carbon is per credit. You know, we're talking about carbon prices in the low 20s now for, you know, for the U.S. market for the B carbon credit, which is probably a pretty high quality deal. Uh, mechanical capture, uh, I've read some articles that suggest that that's in the 50 to $60 a ton range. Um, and Bill Gates, you know, about six months ago, right before we came out, right before we started doing this, CK, he came out with yeah. his book and he said that he paid between $600 and $1,200 a ton for his 2020 offsets. So, like, there's such a wide range of price. You know, yeah. you got Bill Gates at one end at $1,200. I mean, he probably doesn't even know what he bought. He probably doesn't even care. He's got so much money. You got guys like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and uh, what's that other one? Oh, Elon Musk flying rocket ships around. Are they, you know, when are they going to start paying for some offsets on that? I don't know. I want to get some SpaceX offset credits. That's what I want. We applied to yeah. the, right, Kevin? Didn't we apply to that that SpaceX thing? Okay. Oh, no, the X Prize? No, we haven't, yeah. we haven't done that yet. Um, that's like the moonshot solution where he just wants, I think he wants to give $100 million to something that can remove one gigaton of carbon every year. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, it's just awesome. But you're asking what, what's those 600 to $1,200? That's the direct air capture stuff. That's sucking out yeah. of the atmosphere. Um, and again, that's an engineered way of thinking. And it's, you know, that's that's a lot of money. Um, you know, I'd say at the average price of an offset right now, um, I'd say it's between 5 and $10 because it's all this, you know, these, these older avoidance credits. If you wanted to buy them for pennies on the dollar, you could buy them for pennies on the dollar if they're older 
So that's what's distorting the market that, you know, it's, it's at face value, it's commoditized. And if I'm a small company and I hire some sort of, um, you know, some sort of consultant, I'll say, this is the price range. This is our budget. These are the kinds of projects we like. Get me the lowest priced ones. Um, a lot of these big companies with a lot of PR, you know, they're really investing in high quality stories um, on mainly on, you know, tech, oil and gas. Um, a lot of, I think 1% of all carbon credits are bought by universities, which is interesting. So, so those people are really involved, but it really varies in terms of buyer preference and that really distorts it. Um, Unfortunately, ah, I forgot where I was going to go. I just, I just had it we just a second ago. Questions from the the branching reboot paddock. We've we've got quite a few of them covered. Um, okay, good. A lot of them were kind of specific, uh, like specific contract type questions. Mm-hmm. Um. What, well, one guy asked, "Is it just a fad?" and you know, we can also we can back that up. I wanted to circle back, Kevin. You said that there's maybe a five to ten year uh, window to get in, but you, then you also made another comment about maybe waiting a year or two to get in. So, it is. How do we balance that out? I mean, do we need? Do, I didn't wait, obviously, but and I wouldn't advise anybody else wait. What would be a benefit of waiting to get into a carbon program? If you're a conventional farmer and you're interested in regenerative, you know, it's interesting at this, um, at this, this, uh, talk that, um, Travis, um, had me go to a, a, a bunch of the folks there were still, you know, operating kind of more of a conventional mindset where, you know, they'd send them off to sort of centralized, um, operation thinking about when it makes sense for you to transition, when transition financing will be available, when the price of carbon um, changing makes the most sense um, for you. And that really matters. You know, I think, I think it should be set up in a way that producers benefit economically as opposed to, you know, struggling with cash flow. I feel like if you're already regenerative, there's very few programs that will, support you, but there's no harm in joining them because folks that are supporting early adopters, in my opinion, the ones that will do so are already out there. Um, but I'm thinking in particular about folks that are seeking to make a transition to regenerative because it's hard and on the grazing side in particular. I feel like there's yeah. very few programs out there. Um, right. in the U S you know, some folks sell credits from like Australia or Africa, but we're really focused right now on, on, American grasslands. And I, I see the grasslands equation a little bit different. You know, I haven't been here to test. I kind of have a, I kind of have a, a hopeful number of where I think I'm at. So let's just say like bottom barrel, somebody in a normal set stock Columbus style, non-rotation doesn't ever really go look at them type stocking system. If they're sequestering one ton an acre a year on their grasslands, just doing that and a more regenerative system with, you know, animals in one herd rotated daily or multiple times a day, moving across the landscape and getting appropriate rest. That number may go to something more like four to five tons an acre. And, you know, when you're talking about 20 bucks a credit, mm-hmm. you know, those numbers start to get real, really, really fast. I mean, 
it, right. And that that could be like that could be a catalyst for transition for a lot of guys. You know, they they can look at what they're getting now. Okay, if I continue doing this, I'm going to sequester approximately one ton or one credit an acre a year. Mm-hmm. If I do this, yeah, I can do four or five. You know, that's that, you know, and that's it's also highly variable, Brian. Your region, your precipitation, soil type, uh, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I get yeah. that. I think you're right, though. You know, it is a potentially extremely lucrative opportunity. There's just a there's very okay. I won't say there's no good models, but there's very few good models showing how soil carbon storage is done. So if I'm a buyer and you're telling me you know, I'm going to have something based on a model as opposed to really unlocking the majority of those credits after year five, after a second measurement is done. And after, you know, you can verify that these practices have been done for X number of years. That changes things. And it's like, well, can you wait until year five for most of that money to arrive, you know? And again, I'll I'll say it like most folks getting paid from carbon markets aren't getting paid $20 a ton yet. Um, I think I think that's a, you know I think that's a really attractive price point though, but you also need to think again you know you need to think about like what's it going to cost for you to change your operation, um, and can you you know can you agree to that change you know I feel like there's a, there's I don't know you know I feel like you you guys have talked to more folks that have made the transition from conventional to regenerative than I have so you guys know better than I like what are those barriers. So yeah. I feel like, you know, the carbon incentive is really strong. I think it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, I Something that I think would be even cooler is folks that are running regenerative, finding ways to, you know, acquire new land and finance it based on carbon credits. I think that'd be a really cool form of collateral. Um, but that's the other idea. That's more exploratory. Right. That's a conversation I'd like to have with somebody that uh, that knows how to put money together. <laughs> <laughs> I know a couple ranches for sale. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and hey, you know, that's, you know, at, at this really pivotal time where there's a generational transition in terms of farmland acquisition and, uh, you know, the, the rural demographics of America. And, you know, there's a lot of foreign investment in American farmland right now. And there's a lot of corporate investment in American farmland right now. Do carbon credits change the unit economics for folks that do want to live out here? For for entrepreneurs that are like, well, you know, maybe this is more lucrative than you know living the life that I'm living, doing X Y Z. Um, even just being a land steward uh, and doing the carbon farming as opposed to necessarily trying to have the most productive, intensive agriculture. And I think I think yes, I think a lot of folks are going to be attracted to that vision, even if it's just on you know. I don't want to say even if it's on a couple hundred acres. Um, I think reducing barriers to landowners of that size entering is super duper important. Um, There are mechanisms to group folks, but they have to be so geographically close that it's hard because that's just not the norm, I feel like. Um, So unless you have like neighboring, not even neighboring, but like in kind of like the same overall region, um, I haven't really seen that happen. They have to be very similar in soil type and and other things too, right? Which is just, it's just, we know that one corner of the ranch is totally different from the other corner of a ranch. So, um, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, and it varies highly by soil type. You know, I might have 80% one type of soil and my neighbor that's right across the fence that we have two miles of fence with, he might only have 5% of that soil. Yeah. You know, it, there's, there's a lot of variability in it. And, you know, the science isn't there because the data is not there. The data hasn't been generated because we haven't had the science to measure it. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's kind of, we're almost at a chicken and egg point with the carbon market. Like, well, we need this science. Well, we need this data. Well, we need this market. But all three of them are going to have to kind of coexist and, and grow together organically to, to develop properly. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is I think Cargill said that their carbon trading uh, program is going to be larger than their uh, – it's going to be more profitable than their feed uh, trading by 2030. So, you know, a lot of these bigger players in, in the agriculture space, they have these programs, they're enrolling farmers, um, they're doing trials, you know, out in the West. Uh, the Ecosystem Services Marketplace Consortium is kind of this group. Um, they, they, they're, I think they're starting to enroll some pilot folks, but that's where a lot of the big agribusiness players are kind of thinking about. But for them, they're still in the R&D space, you know. That's not going to roll out until, I think, later next year. Um, so it's so really thinking about, you know, <clears throat> how to protect independent producers is something that I think is really important to me because I'm not sure what would really happen, um, within kind of the, the agriculture value chain, um, moving forward in response to carbon markets. You know, there's, there's a lot of carbon credits generated from, uh, finding ways to reduce cow methane and, uh, you know, reducing cow farts and all that. And it's like, well, you know, what does that really solve? Um, you know, do you do it by feeding them seaweed? It's like, okay, great. What does that do? You know, and it's not really, it's like putting a bandaid on a much larger uh, They quit feeding them corn and soybeans and they don't fart as much. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You feed them grass, pasture cows. I I don't know if methane is really that big of a deal for my pasture cows. (laughs) I would suspect that it's not. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, also, there's a lot of like soil microbes that interact with, with the manure and actually just cycle the methane into um, the soil or consume it. So, so, you know, like we don't need these really expensive digesters that, you know, you're still having people deal with a bunch of waste. You know, it's just, it's better as kind of a natural fertilizer. And yeah, I mean, we could go into that. That's all, you know, that's a whole nother <laughs> uh, discussion. But, you know, again, you know, back to, you know, five to 10 years from now, what does it look like? There's, you know, there's a point that's related to this, which is, you know, right now when we're talking about carbon credits, we're talking about offsets. So it's people buying credits to offset their emissions, but there's this other rising idea that's called the carbon inset. And what that means is, you know, folks that are producing these goods, adding a carbon premium to that. So, you know, if I am, uh, you know, producing, uh, let's say I have a, you know, I have sequestered 5,000 tons of carbon uh, in my ranch, um, just doing great practices, you know, kicking butt. Um, I can attach that if I'm selling all my product into some sort of supply chain, I can sell my product at a premium by adding that to 
the product. So this is still kind of an experimental idea, but the reason I bring that up is because I, I see two ways of carbon credits evolving, which is one selling these soil carbon credits outside the agriculture value chain and selling it inside. And I think outside it, there's some industries that will always need to buy offsets, but a lot of them should just decarbonize because the price is just going to be way too high moving forward. Um, but within the value chain, I think there's always going to be a need for folks with a carbon premium. Um, so, so I think that's something to think about. It's like, you know, if I have these measurements done, even if it's not certified by a registry, I can say, look, my food has a carbon negative footprint and that means something. For sure. You, you made a comment about decarbonizing some industries. What, uh, Let's circle back to that. What uh, what were you talking about there? So, you know, a, you know the, the, a, a lot of what companies are doing right now is they're literally just trying to figure out what their carbon footprint actually is. So they, they have entire teams with like 20, 30 people. They're hiring all these super expensive consultants. Essentially, what they're trying to do is say, how much are we actually polluting? You know, uh, let's, let's, <laughs> let's realize what we're actually doing to the land because they've never been, you know, held to account for it. So they don't have any carbon accounting. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out what emissions are actually core to their business. And, you know, they'll need to keep emitting in order to, uh, you know, function (laughs) or honestly stay profitable because in the end, these companies are still putting profits before sustainability. Um, And second is what, um, emissions can they cut down and can they save money doing so and can they do other things can they improve the quality of their products can they improve their design or whatever and be more efficient with all these things um, in the end right now you know I think a lot of these companies do have a sense like a fair amount of these companies do have a, a sense of sort of common good I think um, a lot of CEOs feel the need to step up to the plate and some sort of corporate responsibility but it's also really good marketing and it's also a really good story to tell from their products to relate to consumers that, you know, you know, we changed our product to be more efficient, to uh, have less carbon in the production of it and uh, use different materials uh, that might be recycled or compostable or whatever. Um, and I think you're going to be hearing a lot about that. Um, what's interesting there is, you know, what incentives will drive decarbonization? So are folks going to do it on their own or if they're forced to offset, (laughs) what price is high enough that they will be like, holy crap, we can't pay this much for carbon credits. We need to change now. Um, So, so I think that's kind of the, the gentle push that carbon credits provide that, that we don't know about yet because we don't have a a mandatory market. Um, Issues are like even in mandatory markets because credits are commoditized. If you're really just concerned with profits, you're just going to buy the cheapest credits out there. Um, so it, it, there's always you know there's always ways around it. It's just not the best look. Um, you know, CK mentioned greenwashing before. Um, but the truth is, I, I really wonder how many consumers out there that buy specific products even know what greenwashing is or care about greenwashing. Um, a lot of folks care about sustainability, but I feel like a lot of the sustainability pledges are super easy to make um, because they're pledges. You know, they're not necessarily actions right now. Kind of like a lot of the re- 
pledges to be renewable or reduce their carbon emissions that, that a lot of businesses have made in the last 18 months. And yeah. it, some of it just doesn't seem very realistic. You know, and my question is, like, how are these emissions calculated? Like, are we are we calculating the life cycle of the product or just what comes into the factory and what they produce and what they consume? Or are we taking things all the way back to the raw material stage? Yeah, no, that's so that's a really, really good question. Um, so there's three scopes of emissions in carbon accounting. Um, and I use the, you know, you can think of carbon accounting as, uh, you know, normal accounting. You have, you know, carbon that you're generating and then carbon that you could be offsetting or you're buying credits from. So that's the term that's used in the industry. So the first is scope one emissions. Those are, you know, direct emissions from stuff that you own. Um, scope two is kind of like indirect emissions from like, you know, electricity, heating, uh, cooling, stuff like that, that you're kind of generating and that you kind of need. Scope three is all indirect emissions that occur in a company's value chain. So as I understand it from my research, scope three tends to dwarf scopes one and two. Um, you know, if you're, so FedEx has bought sold carbon credits, not from us. Um, I forget from who actually, but they bought sell carbon credits. They probably you know, paid too much. <laughs> hey, I don't know. Uh, but they, uh, they, they must have like a massive footprint for, uh, you know, just their fleet overall. How is it calculated? Well, there's a couple of different things. One is what source of, of uh, greenhouse gases, you know, if it's nitrous oxide, that's like, is it, I think it's at least 200 times more potent. Uh, I think it could be 400 times more potent than carbon dioxide is. Methane is considered uh, more potent than carbon dioxide, but it is a much shorter life cycle. Um, I think it has a 12 year life cycle in our atmosphere. So it's cycled, you know, it might be more potent now, but it's cycled out a lot faster. So a lot of this carbon accounting is transferring, you know, measuring those greenhouse gases and transferring it over to carbon. Uh, it could be in the product's life cycle. It could be also in the delivery of the product. Um, I feel like this isn't a standardized space. There's a lot of startups just working in literally this, this idea of sort of sustainability as a service. Um, a lot of these folks are also offering carbon credits as a solution, you know, saying, okay, you know, this is your carbon footprint. Uh, this is where we think you can reduce. And these are carbon credits that we think you should consider buying. So it's kind of like this full service thing, but it is far from a settled science. And I'm not even sure we're ready to, to regulate it um, because I'm not sure the government will have a, a template that's necessarily as settled as it should be either. So it's not standardized how we're accounting our emissions and calculating what our quote, what our footprint is. That's what I'm hearing you yeah, say. I mean, the, well, it's just, it's, it's, it's a complex science. Um, it's there, there, you know, there's these scopes that you should follow. There's things that you should account for in your inventory and there's guidance for it. But, you know, I think two very smart people could look at the same company, um, get data from a variety of scientific sources, interview the people there, come up with calculations and come up with two radically different numbers. And I think that we need to have a tolerance for that. Um, I think feeling the need to say one's right over the other isn't necessarily going to be the most productive outcome. 
because I just think the science needs to be more settled before we start strong arming people into certain directions. I see. I see. I, one of the questions that keeps gnawing on the back of my mind is, you know, like, we're, we are on, like, the cusp of a generational shift in agriculture. Right. Oh, God, we have to be. Like, ever, I've been <laughs> – I came back from the Navy in 2006, and ever since then, the average age has just gone up. I mean, I remember telling my, my good friend Nate you – know, we've, we've run cattle together now for 13 years. I remember telling my good friend Nate, like, 13 years ago, I was like, one of these days we're going to be the old men. Well – it's here. It's almost here, but the old men are still here and there's, there's still not any more. There's just not any young people coming up and you know, we, we've got to get around this generational transition. And at the same time, we're grappling with carbon markets and trying to reduce our emissions and making this transition towards more regenerative local food systems. We talk about, we've talked about how to make land more accessible to the next generation mm-hmm. And man, I I just have this feeling that as soon, real soon, carbon price on on grazing lands and potential for you know tillage ground, farm ground, when these things start becoming known over the next year or two, uh, man, it could do some crazy things to land prices. Yeah, and you know it could totally price out. Anybody coming into the market other than big corporate interests wanting to buy up land so they can sequester their own carbon. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, no, this is, it's a big potential crisis. You know, I've kind of seen kind of on the soil work side, you know, we, we see a lot of cool companies in their generative space. There's a lot of folks um, kind of trying to make farmland investing um, possible for the retail investor. So that's, you know, the, the average person that has uh, their savings and they're trying to find things to invest in. So, you know, they can put a bit of money and have a percentage owned of the farm. Um, so that's one potential solution. Is that the right one? I'm not sure. Um, I hope the operators of the land uh, get, <laughs> get appropriately compensated as well, because if not, what we're going to see is we're going to see, a, I mean, I'm not sure if, by the way, this model is going to work necessarily. I just don't know enough. But what we're going to see is the rise of a lot of land owned by someone, but then operated by someone else or, you know, owned by a group of people owned by these real estate investment trusts, um, which I see popping up a lot, especially in the regenerative space. Um, and then, you know, they, they have an operating team, typically folks that are experienced in regenerative land management, um, kind of running the show. I think that model is great for the land. Um, but you're totally right in, that, in, in thinking about like, what's this going to do to the rural economy and, you know, how is it going to change, you know, what folks that are currently owning land and operating land are doing and is it attractive for them too? Um, I feel like that part's probably left out a lot, especially generationally. So, you know, I know of one group that particularly focuses on that paper point where, you know, you have the older generation that now is, you know, might just not want to operate the land. And then maybe their kids just don't want to be there. Uh, they want to go into the city or they're just not present or they just don't want to do that. 
So then they they specialize in, in those particular situations, buying up the land and changing the practices to regenerative, um, and, and letting the uh, I, I believe that they they allow the family to still own some sort of percentage. I think that's cool. Um, but you're totally right. You know, farmland prices are going to keep going up, and they, they, it's been a very stable asset class. I think it's a very attractive investment for anyone that has millions of dollars of disposable income. But <laughs> how many of us do? Not me. Not me. <laughs> Wish I did, though. There's a couple nice ranches I around. I wouldn't mind owning. Yeah. Same. Being Kevin. Yeah. I mean. <sighs> And from an annualized perspective, it's it's super valuable, Um, you know, and then things like timberland are as well. But, you know, the productivity you can get from farmland, the self-sufficiency, just, you know, the the sheer, I guess, I don't don't want to talk about like the the idyllic nature of it, but, you know, you can you can build a whole economy out of it if you combine, you know, a diversity of outputs, Um, with near near non inputs, you know, if you think about it, if if it's a hunting ranch, on top of sort of having grazing, on top of adding some ecotourism, um, then you know you can do with these agrivoltaic systems that are wicked cool, but still kind of niche. You can you can run some of that, and then you can have solar as well, and and those are are really rising right now as well. So it's like, you know, does that change how people perceive farmland? Yeah, but also, you know, it's been doing this for a number of years. It's not like this is anything new. Uh, It's been performing really well since, like, the 1990s. And I think people are changing how they see farming and food production. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody we've talked to and everything we've seen in the last 18 months since COVID started, you know, where are people being successful? Where are people healthy? Where they're outside, where they're working out, where they're eating local, clean food healthy food, regenerative systems work. You know, we're seeing that over and over and scalability is always a question. How can we scale it fast enough? How can we get access to markets? How can we get more people on the land that are passionate about regenerative agriculture? And I think some of these carbon programs may have some answers, but you know, like we've discussed, it's still, it's still a very new thing and jumping in right now is not for everybody. And maybe it is a, it is advisable for some people to wait. If that's you, that's you. Other people, it might be better for you to get in now. Yeah. 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 And I mean, again, it, you know, changing these practices gives you more than just carbon. So it's not like you're only going to be relying sort of on the carbon credit payment um, to have a, a better system and spend more profit. What it does is, it, one, if you're transitioning, it cushions the blow a little bit, provides more collabor- collateral and an alternative revenue stream. But, you know, it reduces the, the input costs that you have. Um, you know, it increases the value of the land. So, you know, I, I always say that carbon is, it's not the cherry on top, but it's just, it's another piece of the pie. And it's really important to, to think about the whole pie when you're thinking about what, changing to a regenerative system adds and carbon's obviously a big unknown there. Um, and also, you know, it, like, like you said, Brian, it has the chance to, to go up to, you know, 60, 70, a hundred dollars a ton. I mean, I, I can't say for, with confidence when that will happen and if that will happen, but it will go up right now. We're, we're sort of at these, uh, these floor prices because we still have a voluntary market. And a floor price is always a good place to start. You know, I'm, 
I'm not going to complain yeah. about where the floor price is for what I feel like you know is possible with my soil types. So we kind of got to get out of here in a little bit. Is there anything we've left on the table you want to get off your chest? Uh, yeah, you know, thank you for, for having me. You know, I think soil carbon is awesome. Um, it's really cool to read about scientifically. Um, if you guys want to geek out on it as much as I do, um, you know, I, one thing I'll say is I, I, I try and be overly cautious with things. You know, there are technologies that are emerging that will make measurement a lot, um, easier, faster, and more reliable. Like, you know, something something that's called an eddy covariance power is really cool. It literally can measure how much carbon is going in and out of the land um, for a certain area. So I just think that it's really important to be optimistic about these things. Um, like I said, you know, in my own personal journey, in a year, a lot, lot's changed for me. Um, and I feel like a lot more in tune with my food. I, feel, I personally feel better, and I feel like um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing for, for the rest of the world. But, you know... At the heart of all this is trust, um, and you got to trust the people that you're working with, and make sure that they're trustworthy. Perfect, perfect. Well, CK, you got anything else? No, that was perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. I think this is a lot of people have been requesting this, and I didn't want to give this because I feel like it's easier to be heard from you because you've been doing the actual research behind all the soil carbon stuff instead of the person who's doing the landowner stuff. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I know. And thanks for having me. I mean, if you, if anyone has any questions, please uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, my email is it's Kevin at buildgrassroots.com. Um, happy to answer any questions, chat with any folks that, that are curious about the markets. Also, I have a, a newsletter focused on soil carbon. Um, try and post on it every two weeks. Um, you know, it's just different topics. So if there's anything you guys want to know, let me know. Where can we find your, uh, your blog? It's, uh, soilcarbon.substack.com. Um, Substack's the platform for independent writers these days. So check it out. Anything else you want me to include in the show notes? Any other good resources or places, uh, our listeners can go to get more information? Um, I'll send I'll send a couple links after, um, but I also write uh, a newsletter every week on different regenerative topics. Um, for example, last week I wrote about overproduction in agriculture um, and the grass-fed certification and the problems with that. Um, so I'll also shoot that over. That's uh, regeneration.substack.com. I'll make sure all those get in the show notes page. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Well, thanks again for joining us, Kevin. Have a great day. You too, man.